and welcome back to Full Dusty Jacket, a literary podcast for gentlemen. My name is Sam. I am joined by my friend, podcasting partner, host, and the greatest reader I've ever met. Sean, how are you? I'm doing great, Sam. I'm in such a good mood for this feel-good stories we're about to discuss today. All right, so Sean, I have a question for you. Yeah. What the fuck? (laughs) I know, I know. Immediately after, I remember, well, okay, we're reading... Uh, everything that rises must converge, and it's a collection. No, no, answer the question. What the fuck? I, I thought these stories blew me away the first time I read them. They're so good. There's and some of them are duds, but a lot of them just leave you reeling after after every story. And I wanted to give that to somebody else. Yeah, no shit. Reeling's a way to say it. Reeling is a way to say it. All right. So yeah, like you said. Um, this was your choice, Sean. Everything That Rises Must Converge by Flannery O'Connor, who, incidentally, there is a documentary either already out about her or coming out about her that I actually wanted to watch before I read this, but it took me longer to read this than I anticipated. So I don't know as much about her life as I would have liked to going into this podcast. Um, dude, this book is like a fucking revolver. Um, and you're playing Russian roulette, but every chamber is full. None of these, it, it, it's a, it's a, what do you call a book of short stories? I like a, this is like a collection of her stuff. Uh, there's like, there's like two types of short story books. There's the collection, which is typically by one author, all their works. I mean, it's actually always by one author. And then there's like an anthology that a small press will release that has various works by different authors to kind of, um, showcase what they sell or what they publish that kind of thing but uh okay so so here's my question all right um you say were these things um these short stories were they released independently of each other in other places or were they all released together for this book they were individually released from the years of 1960 to 1965 and it was released after her death in 1966. So this was the last uh, grouping of her collections and the last short story that she ever wrote is included in this, this collection. Well, that surprises me. And the reason that surprises me is that not only are all these stories so thematically similar to each other, but two of the stories in order almost have inverse endings to each other. Um, it's the one where the guy's mother takes in a, like, uh, I don't know what you call her, like a bad girl, basically. And then the story right after that is when the guy's father takes in, like, a bad boy. And then there are, of course, tragic results in which one, a parent dies, and then the other, a child dies. So I, I it was, it's kind of shocking to me that these weren't all written together, considering um, kind of like the symmetry that they have with each other. Yeah, and that's another of the strengths that this book really has, where I find a lot of short story authors, because there's definitely a like a niche of authors that just work in the short story format, where they'll release a collection of stories, and you know not every story from one to the next tackles the same themes or subjects. They'll kind of like put out rough sketches, and the tone can vary wildly. Where with uh, Flannery O'Connor, this is a very very I want to say linear kind of thing where this to me is her own retelling of old Testament stories, kind of these bigger than very small scale, but bigger than life morality stories. Do you agree with what I'm saying there? 
Can I summarize the book real quickly? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, here's the book. Judgmental, racist, southern white woman judges everybody, gets gored to death by wild bull. (laughs) Yeah. Even though that's only one of the stories, mm -hmm. that's all of the stories. Exactly. And yet there's still each story comes at that kind of angle where it's attacking a specific sin. It's usually pride. Uh, Most of the time it's, you know, misplaced faith in oneself or the other. And they always kind of get their comeuppance at the very end. But that is a great example of, yeah, a lot lot of these stories are from the perspective of these middle-aged Southern women. Okay, so here's the thing, right? Um, If I had to retitle this book, and even though I'm kind of cheating because the word I'm going to use is in one of the stories, I would just call the book Judgment. This entire book seems to me, and I'm Jewish, right? So and we're going to get into my Judaism and how I felt reading this book. Um, but to me, the book is kind of like that old proverb, which is like, like judge thee, least, lest thee be judged. Sean, you're a good Catholic boy. How does that go? <laughs> no, I think you, I think you got it. Uh, yeah, it's like, it's basically don't throw stones in glass houses. Like, don't. You know, if you're going to judge somebody else, you have to allow yourself to be judged first or even more strictly. Now, do you think the judgment in these stories is is uniform? It's parceled out equally or is it some of it unfairly? Yeah, so it's I, I think you're you're um, I didn't think about this until you said it. But your observation that these are Old Testament tales is spot on. And the reason it is is that every character in this book is essentially a Protestant Christian, um, a Southern Protestant Christian for the most part, with the exception of like one guy. And they think that they're constantly acting in Christ's name, right? Which is, they're kind of, it's like the hypocrisy of Christianity, even though the author is a deep Catholic. But it's the idea of all these people, and they think they're so... Christian, I guess, you know, for lack of a better word. And at the end of the day, they all suffer old old testament style wrath. You know what I mean? Like here here they think the world is a Christian place, when in fact the world is an old testament place where judgment is meted out to the deserving and undeserving alike. Because in the Old Testament, bad shit happens to good people, not just to bad people. So I think you were really spot on in realizing that it is an Old Testament book. And the thing I'm so confused about in all of this, Sean, and I assume you know a little bit more about her than I do, is that she's a devout Catholic. And let's just get into it right now. Um, What is she trying to say? Big question, Sean, but what is she trying to say? I think more than anything, she's trying to point out the hypocrisy of uh, these. It's mostly from the white perspective of how that they're good Christians, they're doing the best that they can, and somehow, even though they don't ever admit it to themselves, they're expecting preferential uh, preferential treatment. In one of the stories called Revelation, this woman is sitting in a doctor's office, and she's casting judgment on every single person around her. And she's even got it in her head where it's like, Oh, well, thank you, Jesus, for making me who I am and giving me my class and dignity and religion. And she's thinking about almost like a class structure and layers that if she had to be reborn, who would she want to be? And she's like, oh, well, you got like 
they're just like, because she's Southern and racist inherently, she's like, well, there's black people on the bottom. But she also says that white trash people are like just a little bit above them. And then she places herself and her husband above that. And then like landowners above it. And then she's like, wait a second, some black people own land. And then she starts confusing herself. So the dichotomy that she has in her head that motivates all of her actions, she doesn't even thoroughly understand. She kind of follows it blindly. And so I think that O'Connor, by using these stories and making them like blunt instruments, is trying to knock some sense into people about not only maybe their own faith, but why other people are compelled to believe and act in this way in order to kind of help you understand how to be more empathetic when dealing with these really misguided but rotten people at the very center of themselves. Does that help explain anything? Or did I just so muddy Sean, the waters more? No, no, it did. So, Sean, it's interesting that you brought up Revelation, and here's why. If you research these stories like individually or if you go on Wikipedia to um, the collection, um, Everything That Rises Must Converge, Revelation is considered to be the most important one of all the stories. And the reason is that it was the, the story that she wrote the year she died. And apparently she died of lupus, and she knew she was going to die of lupus. And this story is by far, in terms of all the stories, the most analyzed one by literary critics. And the idea of it basically, um, and there, I mean, there's tons of research and analysis on this one short story, but it's the idea of her basically identifying with the main character, uh, Ruby, this woman. And at the same time, it's kind of like all these characters, they're waiting in a doctor's office, but they're actually all waiting to get to heaven. That's what this really is. Mm-hmm. They're on a kind of purgatory. And this woman has this this idea of who basically, like she keeps calling it the boxcar order, which is like, you know, who's on the bottom and who's on the top. Like you said, there's a very specific order. And yet she keeps having these visions. And in her visions, when people actually start going to heaven, all the people she thought were on the bottom go before her, right? And there's all sorts of analysis on this story. And one of the analyses on this story, which I think is really interesting, is that it is a condemnation of Protestant Christianity. So she was a Catholic, and I believe, you know, in her mind, basically, because she grew up in the South, and she probably grew up with lots of Protestant, um, morally uh, uh, smug, superior-styled people, and it's kind of the idea that only God may judge. You cannot judge anybody. Only God may judge. And your ideas of who is above whom, these are all sort of Protestant ideas. And in fact, Catholicism is the only true form of Christianity in which you are all supplicant to God. That is it, right? There is no, there's no hierarchy to any of it, which is kind of funny considering that in Catholicism, they have priests and popes and whoever. But this is the book that is, this is the story that is considered the most important because it seems to be the one in which she's contemplating her own death and re-looking at everything in her life from growing up in the South to all her religious beliefs, and it's all converging on this doctor's office, uh, this this fictional doctor's office that all the characters are waiting in to be seen when really all the characters are waiting to go to heaven. Sean, had you heard any of this or even um, come to any of these kinds of conclusions while you were reading this story? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's easy to see without analysis that this is kind of the author's voice coming through, especially towards the end where Ruby is by herself on her farm and she's 
reflecting about what a young a younger woman had said. One of the inciting instances of it is that as she's trying to Ruby's trying to hold this polite, ma- well mannered conversation with another woman that she deems are equal, this white this person that she considers to be white trash keeps butting in, and there's a young girl that keeps shooting her angry glances and towards the end of like the middle section, the young girl actually throws a book at her and calls her a warthog and says she's going to hell. So Ruby is back on the farm and she's talking out loud to God saying, why did she say that I'm the warthog? Why is she saying that I'm going to hell? Because she's never had that genuine introspective look. She's always pictured herself as the ideal well-behaved, you know, true Christian woman that it's, it's like, she's going to do all the sorting out when it comes time to get to heaven. And then she has this vision from God, or maybe from, she's having an aneurysm and she does see everybody on. It's like the lower classes that she condemned, they are going first. And then it's like her class, which by being so judgmental and being so reserved and maybe not, following God's word to, you know, love each other and treat each other as equals, they're actually given, you know, third booking. They're given the third rate treatment and they're trying to remain austere. Uh, But if this is really how O'Connor feels, I don't, I don't know if I can put a direct one-to-one comparison because I feel that O'Connor is far enough away that she might've thought about this kind of stuff but I don't ever think that she necessarily believed that these characters were her. Maybe a small segment here and there were her, but I don't, I don't buy all the way in that that's exactly how O'Connor feels about herself. But I think it's cool that that's the most uh, written about story because it's actually one of my least favorite ones. What was one of your favorite stories in this collection? Well, I'll tell you that in a second, but first I want to counter that, all right? So when they're in the doctor's office, um, Ruby, the main character, who is a southern, white, middle-aged Protestant, is talking to another woman, like you said, who she considers to be about her equal, and it's the woman's daughter who is shooting her the, the looks, right? The woman's daughter is named Mary Grace. All right, so for stars, we got Mary, mother of Jesus, and Grace, a Christian-slash-Catholic concept, um, and she's going to college in Massachusetts, which uh, Ruby, as a conservative, Protestant, you know, white woman of the South, kind of like looks down on. And when Mary Grace finally attacks Ruby, she throws a book at her, okay? And apparently this book, which I can't find the title of right now, actually has, um, it's like, it's, it, it's the title of like a, Catholic, a Catholic proverb almost. Okay. So think of it this way. This, 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 this girl with the name Mary Grace, a Catholic name, throws a Catholic book at this Protestant white woman. And it's considered to be an act of revelation. She's literally the prophet who in an act of violence, and I'm literally quoting Wikipedia right here, uh, is delivering a prophetic message to Ruby. So just, you know, I, I'm kind of curious, basically, at the end of the day, all of um, O'Connor's characters in these stories are judgmental people, people who are judging others. And I think what's really cool and also strange about all these stories is that there's a mix of Christian theology, spirituality, and 
and also sociological um, criticisms of the South. Um, if you know anything about the Catholic uh, Protestant divide, and Sean, you would know better than me because you are a Catholic boy. Um, I don't know why I keep saying a, that. I want to correct you. Like I haven't spent a day in church in my life. <laughs> but but you're a Catholic boy. <laughs> okay. So, so, but have you seen the Monty Python movie, The Meaning of Life? This is related, and I always go back to this. I I know I've seen bits and pieces of it. So there's, it's kind of, it's almost like a movie of short stories, and one short story, uh, one section of the movie is about this very poor Catholic family where the main character is this really poor father, and he's got like a million kids, quite literally, because he's Catholic and he won't use a rubber, and he's telling them that he can't afford them any longer, and he's going to uh, sell them all for scientific experimentation. And at the end of his segment, he's walking his literally a line of dozens of his children down the street to take them to the science lab where he's going to sell them. And as he's doing this, it transitions into this next sketch where it's a very uptight English Protestant family. And uh, the husband is looking at them. And he's like, bloody Catholics with their bloody children dirtying up the bloody streets. He's like, if only they would leave behind their own, their old superstitions and the, and the chains of the papacy. And, like, and he's basically a giant snob. And I think that in some ways, because I believe that uh, um, Flannery O'Connor grew up as a Catholic in a Protestant South, you know, she's combining all of these different elements, um, her spirituality, her criticisms of religion, her conflict with religion because she is a devout catholic and also her her um her criticisms of the environment she grew up in and they all kind of converge in this one story and i'm with you sean this was my least favorite story because to me it seems the most self-important as if somebody was saying to themselves i'm going to die in a year i better write my last you know my last great statement and sometimes stories like that uh, don't take you in as much. They don't involve you as much because they are so full of uh, metaphor, right? They're not because they're not literal enough to be, draw you into the story. Yeah, I, and I, I yeah, it's this. It's not cut and dry enough for me to kind of make that leap in the context of the book and the author's life to try and tie it together. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think if you're going to make a statement, write what you write the best and leave out any of the ambiguity like i don't i don't believe that you should read subtext on authors and all that much of stuff i think if it bubbles to the surface and helps you understand the work a little bit more that's great but i i really don't hold in high esteem all the stories where the author's directly trying to you know get their last philosophy down on paper before they they kick the bucket but i think i think that's funny about the money python sketch that yeah protestantism is is shown as like a, a form of snobbery, like an inherited uh, betterness uh, or supremacy over you know everybody else that isn't like them. Whereas Catholics are just you know living their life and doing what they can to get by, you know selling their kids. I, I think it's like uh, what is it a modest proposal where yeah. there's too many yeah. Irish Catholic kids. So Swift is like, well, how about we just eat them? And he's just like, all right. <laughs> well, that was that was the whole idea was he was basically everyone in, in Ireland was starving from the potato famine and the English were so cold to, to the Irish they didn't want to help him is that his his uh, modest proposal is like, well, maybe we should just start eating our children, right? Because he was trying to like, he was trying to mock the British for their cruelty and their indifference mm -hmm. by coming up with a solution he thought they might actually agree with and just expose how cold and cruel that they are. Uh, now, to answer your question in terms of my favorite story, 
it's probably the one about the pits. You know which one I'm talking about? The old man and his granddaughter? Yeah, it's called A View a View of the Trees. Yeah, or A View of the Forest, something like that. I'll tell you I'll tell you in a second. But the point is this. The story is about this this um this old man in the south, of course. Um it's called A View of the Woods. Yeah. And he owns all this land. And he's, you know, he's like a miserly old curmudgeon piece of crap, quite frankly. And he has this daughter who he feels kind of indifferent towards. And she married a guy that he calls Pitts, which is the guy's last name, who he can't stand. And his daughter, her husband, and his granddaughter all live on his land, on like of his many acres of land. And... At first, he hates, like, everybody. He wants nothing to do with the granddaughter. But when the granddaughter is born, he looks at her, and he decides that she looks like him, and therefore she's not a pit. She's actually whatever his last name is. I can't remember now. And he kind of takes her in, and he develops this bond with her, this relationship with her, while at the same time always talking shit on her dad and her mom, which is his daughter. And at some point in his life, he decides to start selling off pieces of his land. And... He gets to the point where he's going to sell off a piece of his land to some really shady developer who might be the devil, by the way, who might be Satan, who's going to build a gas station on it. Now, it happens to be that this piece of land blocks um, a view of the woods from his granddaughter's house, his granddaughter living with uh, Pitts and, and her mother. And the granddaughter is just furious about this. She just is so upset that he would sell off this one specific piece of land that blocks her view of the woods where i believe the the term she uses her daddy grazes like where he takes his maybe his like his sheep or his animals out to graze um and the the grandfather just can't understand why she's so upset about this he like just doesn't understand it and they're in a car together and he thinks he's gonna make her happy by like buying her a boat and she just doesn't care and basically at one point He's like, enough of this, like, you're being a brat. And he takes her out to, like, beat her, to, like, you know, like, whip her. And instead, she starts beating him. And he's like, oh, my God, how could you do this to me? Uh, You know, you're my granddaughter. And she's, like, just, like, whipping the shit out of him. And she's saying, I'm not one of you. I've been a pits all along. And this sets him off. And he smashes her head against the rock, a rock. He smashes her head against a rock. She dies. And then he looks at the sunset has a heart attack, and he dies. And this was why when you were talking about are only the deserving in this book uh, getting their judgment, I would say no, because this poor girl did not deserve to get her head smashed against the rocks uh, by her grandfather. I liked this story the most because it was it was the one, it wasn't the first story in which the old uh, southern white woman was, was gored by a, 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 a bull, um, and it wasn't the second story, Greenleaf, about the sun... No, you uh, got those s- two confused. Greenleaf is the Did one about the bull. Okay. Yeah. And the first one is okay. the namesake of the collection that we'll talk about. All right. Sorry. Yep. You got it. So anyways, um, the point is it was the one where I said, holy shit. Like, okay, I see what we're do- Like, I see what I'm in for here. Like really brutal, naked, um, tragedy with like nothing to grasp onto uh, for any kind of comfort. Yes. So it's always that story I go back to because it, you know, there are other brutal stories in this, specifically The Lame Shall Enter First, which I really enjoyed and has a horrible brutal brutal ending just like the rest of them. But it, but it was a view of the woods where it really clued me into what I was getting into. Sean, don't get me wrong. These are fascinating and well-written and, there's so much in them that to me, I just can't help 
but read analysis of them. But they're fucking brutal, dude. I mean, I the reason it took me so long to read these was because I had to stop for like a few days in between every story because I couldn't go on, man. And that's like, what the fuck are you doing here? Like, we're going to have to, dude, we're going to have to pick like the Da Vinci Code next or something. We're, we're, we're going to yeah. have to do something uh, that the people, you know, like I recommend everybody read this book. And then I recommend everybody watch whatever movie or TV show comforts them the most. Yeah, I, I would say you'd watch, you know, the comforting uh, movie or TV show first, read like one or two stories, see how you handle it, you know, and sleep on it. Uh, because, yeah, it's, it's, if you thought Hard Rain Falling was like a nasty, grim, and, and in a different way, I feel, than this collection of stories. But to get back to A View of the Woods, that was the one... Hold on for one second. I'm sorry. This makes Hard Rain Falling look like the sound of music. Please continue. <laughs> uh, but yeah, to, I, I second your opinion of View of the Woods as being the one that really does grab you and it shakes you to your core as, as to what happens. And this is my second reading of the collection. And I remember liking A View of the Woods very much because it does have one of the most uh, shocking turn of events and memorable as endings go. But when I read it the second time, you get so much more out of it because of the, the way it builds up. So the story begins with the old man who's, who's Tillman, and he's sitting with the daughter, um, and they're watching as, I believe it's, it's, like a, it's not like a bulldozer, I think it's like maybe a, uh, like an earth excavator is clearing out a parcel of Tillman's land. And what this means is that Pitts the girl's father had done something to displease Tillman. Now, frequently, whenever... Well, backing up a little bit. So Pitts married Tillman's daughter after Tillman hired Pitts to come work his land after he became too old to tend to it. And it's Pitts' understanding that when Tillman dies, Pitts is going to inherit this farm and the house and all the land. So even though uh, Tillman has all the power because he owns the land, Pitts has one direct way to attack at Tillman, and that's through the girl. So there's, there's one or two scenes where they'll be eating dinner, and Tillman's like, um, I just sold another piece of the land, and Pitts will calmly like stop eating and then like nod at the little girl He'll go into his pickup truck, he'll drive her to a spot, and then whip her around the ankles with his belt. And this is the only thing that, like, Pitts can get at Tillman. So Tillman keeps going up to the little girl. Like, one time, he can't stand it. He follows uh, Pitts and the little girl, and then after Pitts leaves, he goes up to the little girl, and he's like, why didn't you defend yourself? You're a Tillman. Like, that's a Pitts. Like, you don't take no shit from Pitts. Like, hit him back the next time he hits you. And she's like, nobody hit me. Nobody laid a finger on me. And Tillman's completely taken, uh, taken aback. He's like, I just watched your father beat you. Like, why, why didn't you defend yourself? And the little girl again is like, nobody touched me. And if anybody ever tried to touch me, I'd whoop him. And then so that translates into the end where Tillman, he gets so fed up and realizes that 
the little girl didn't respect him the way that she respected her father because Tillman thinks it's because her father beats her. And so Tillman's like, well, I guess I have to, you know, lay down the law physically and punish her too. And when he goes to beat her, that's when she savagely attacks him. And the father, like the till old man Tillman's like, he's like, he's like, what are you doing? You're a Tillman. And uh, I have the quote here where she looks him in the eye after she just like almost kills him. And she, she looks him in the eye and goes, you've been whipped. It's said, because at this point he doesn't even view her as a little girl. Uh, you've been whipped, it said, by me. And then it added, bearing down on each word, and I'm pure pits. Just throwing in his face that he he's, she doesn't actually ever respect him the way she does with her father. And Yeah, she might as well be pissing in his mouth. Yeah, and now you might think that that's like an out-of-nowhere turn, but the more I thought about it, because that little girl has to have motivation for trying to kill her father or her grandfather or even why she accepted the beatings. And after I thought about it, it's penance because what Tillman is doing is he's selling off the, the property around him, but he's also selling off the little girl's future because that's what her father's going to inherit when Tillman dies. And when Tillman decides he wants, he wants a gas station in front of the house. And if he does that, that does cut off the grazing land of the, of pits, but it's also uh, where the, the rest of the family, they play and they look at the woods. So whereas Tillman thinks he's inviting progress and making a better world for, you know, uh, the little girl, the little girl is only seeing it through the eyes of a little girl that this old man is, directly attacking my daddy and trying to take something away that my brothers and sisters enjoy. Does, does that clarify the conflict a little bit more? Yeah, I think, I think it does a lot. It's, you know, you know, when you were talking about like leaving subtext alone, I mean, in some ways this story is a great example of that where it's kind of like, where's it going? Where's it going? Where's it going? And then when it ends, it ends so brutally and suddenly that it doesn't give you time to analyze it backwards because you're so taken by the shocker of an ending. And in some ways, the um, the visceral feeling you get when you read the ending, it doesn't make you want to go back and revisit it thematically. You're just yeah, like, no. oh my fucking God. Yeah, you're you just don't... like, okay, like, like, what's next? Like, where are we going next? Like, if that's one story, I wonder what the next story is going to be. And the next story, thank God, is probably the most humorous story in the book. And honestly, I'm kind of surprised it's not your favorite, which is the enduring chill, because I kind of felt knowing you that that character was the most like you, which is like this, um, this, it's about this young guy. He's from New York. He, he gets like, he like goes back to like visit his mom and he gets like really sick and he's convinced he's dying, but he's such a romantic, like he, you get the sense he wants to be dying mm-hmm. and he wants to like have like all these like deep, discussions that mean he must have all these meaningful interactions before he dies because he's such a romantic he's he's a failed writer and you get the sense he's like trying to have 
some intense life experience, even though he'll never be able to write about it, but because he feels that living life intensely is the only way to live it. And I don't know, it, it, it just reminded, obviously because you um, you recommended the book to me, so I don't think I would have thought of you if, if I had been recommended it by somebody else, but the guy reminded me of you. Oh yeah, no, and, and that's kind of why I, I love and hate that story at the same time, because I do see parts of myself in that character where he's like, he demands to see a priest, but not like his family priest. He wants to see specifically, oh God, what is it? It's it's a, a, a Baptist or just something mm-hmm. very far away from where his mom raised him. And they send this one priest over and he's hard of hear like hard of hearing. And he's like the the young man's like trying to get on this deep conversation about God and the, the truth and all this. And the old man's like, What? Are you praying? Make sure you pray every night before you go to sleep. And he's like, Don't yeah, he doesn't have anything wise to say. He no. has nothing wise to say. All it literally is, and this is the it's just like, Did you say your Hail Marys? Like yeah. have you done like it's like all about this ritualistic nonsense and to me, this character, what he is, and Kyler is, he reminds me of you, is imagine you've got, like, I don't know, a fever or something, right? Something that was easily treatable. And then I said, all right, man, well, I got these this medicine for you. Just take this medicine. You'll be fine. And you said, oh, I can't. The mortal coil, it, like, it shortens by the minute. I simply can't. <laughs> like, that's what he reminded me of. It just... He so clearly wanted to die. What's hilarious at the end of this book is that he doesn't get what he wants. It turns out like, yeah, he's sick, but he's not going to die. And it's almost like heartbreaking for him that that he won't be able to have this like grand finale in which he'll get to, you know, live as some sort of tragic hero of his own story. Um, it's it's actually one of the weakest stories in the book, honestly, but it but thank God it came after a view of the woods. Cause I don't think I could have taken like the comforts of home right after a view of the woods. Yeah. And, and that story is kind of a palate cleanser because I, I feel like the way that Flannery writes the young people in there, they're all very idealistic from like whenever they show up, they're all, they all have this progressive notion that they're trying to escape the, the, you know, the, uh, the clutches of the South and the mentalities mm-hmm. and everything like that. But that's right. In the end, it's like, they're just hypocrites because if they just accepted who they are and what they were not like embrace it, but just it's, it's always about coming to acceptance with the world around you and the people you love and just trying to make the best of it, not try to will yourself to death inside of bed in your mom's house. Like that's not getting anybody anywhere. And I think the fact is, is that uh, they bring the doctor over and they don't know. They, the, the man's clearly sick. He's feverish. He's delirious. He's not making sense. And the doctor's like, I have no idea what, what it is. And the doctor shows up at the end and he's like, oh, well, I figured it out. It's just a, a recurring fever or, or some quack. Something. Yeah, he'll have it the rest of his life. Yeah. And it's I think it's very clearly like a nod to... Uh, like it's a, it's a mental disorder. It's some sort of depression, like acute depression, something along that lines that just wasn't respected in the South, uh, especially in Revelation. Mary Grace, I was kind of skimming that little story while we were talking about it. She's studying in the North. She's studying uh, it's like psychology and like sociology. So these are obviously notions that it's like, well, if you're sick in the South around like the 30s, 40s, 50s, 
well then obviously it's some it's something physically ailing you like what do you mean there's something wrong with your mind so as much as his mother loves him she's never going to be able to understand what this this young man's putting himself through that she's never going to be able and you know without some further clarity as to what's going on with her her kid he's always going to be this like mopey over exaggerated you know worthless kind of you know uh, burden on her uh and that is not like the most like oh hey that's an uplifting story but it at least it doesn't have that kind of neck snap right afterwards that a view from the woods does and then that leads on into my actual it's i think it's my second favorite story of this collection was there anything else you wanted to talk about with the enduring chill no, I was just going to say this is this is the closest thing you're going to get to comedy in this book. I think and I think it's the comforts of home, the story that follows next, where it's about the the middle-aged man and he's living with his mother and his mother takes in kind of like a floozy off the streets and she's like a self-proclaimed nymphomaniac and she's making passes at him and he's like fending her off like by throwing chairs at her and he's like what would my, my dear old dad do? And he, he eventually tries to plant his father's gun in her handbag. She discovers it. They get into a tussle and start fighting. And then the man's mother has to split them up. But in the, the, the fracas, the, the son ends up shooting his mother dead. And the, the cop comes in and the cop takes like one look at the crime scene and is like, Oh yeah, well they're obviously having like a lover's tiff, and the mother didn't approve of the girl, so the man tried to murder her or something like that. He just kind of immediately like washes his hands. That to me was the single most like, all right, we don't really have anything to say morally here. It's just like a funny kind of uh, a gift of the. Well, let me get this right. Middle-aged man murders his mother, and you think that's the comedy? Well, I think it's I think it's <laughs> the overreaction of it. How pure, like, yeah. it's a it's a purely a Protestant sexual thing where he immediately judges this this young woman as, like, a loose woman with no morals. Uh, at one mm-hmm. point, she tries to kill herself, and she does it with, like, a paring knife. But even then, that doesn't arise any pity in his, in his heart. He's already passed judgment on this girl. He's already condemned her, but she's just being, like, a young woman. Like, she's lost and adrift. She doesn't know what she's doing with her life, and he can't, for the life of him, accept that this girl is going, you know, and be, like, a good person to her. Like, he just can't bring it to her because all he sees is that that sex, the, the notion that she's just after him to have sex with him. That's what I thought was funny about it. Well, for starters, the mother in this story is one of the only true pure uh, and Christian characters of noble intentions in the entire uh, short story collection. <coughs> Excuse me, guys. A little sneeze there. I don't think I'm going to edit that out. You're all going to hear that. Anyways, um, the mother is truly trying to help this woman out of the kindness of her heart. I don't get the sense that she's doing it for any ulterior motives or trying to make herself feel better about herself as a person. I think it's impossible to talk about... Um, the comforts of home without discussing it in uh, with uh, the lame shall enter first because these two stories are so similar to each other in their inverse, right? So the comforts of home is about a Christian woman who's trying to do the Christian thing by taking in a young troubled woman 
uh, and just like giving her a second chance. And she pays the ultimate price, kind of like Jesus, right? She gets killed and not only killed, but by her own son. Think of uh, Lord forgive them, they know not what they do. However, in the lame shall enter first, um, there's this guy, he's a widower raising a young son. His wife has just died. He is a, I'm going to call him a devout atheist. I'm an atheist as well, Sean, as well as a Jew, but this guy, for him, atheism's not enough. He's devout. He's got to convince other people of his atheism. So for starters, he's always telling his young son that his mother is, like, gone. She's never coming back. There's no heaven. She doesn't exist anywhere else. So he refuses to give his young son, like, any kind of comfort in that way. And at the same time, he is uh, trying to mentor this young troubled boy, uh, like a really, like, bad kid who's got, like, a clubbed foot. And this kid's, like, highly religious, but he thinks that, like, the devil has a hold of him and this guy is like not only does the devil not have a hold of you there is no devil there is no god and he's like and i'm going to show you the right way to be and you're going to get better god damn it and everything goes terribly this guy's only doing it for himself really and at the end of that story his son is convinced by the bad kid that if he kills himself he'll see his mother in heaven so of course the young son hangs himself uh for the father to find him. And I just think it's really interesting that those two stories are back to back because they have in they, the two main characters in some ways are inverses of each other. The, the mother in the first story uh, the comforts of home is doing the truly Christian thing and pays uh, with it, uh, pays for it with her life. And the father in the second story is doing in some ways the more typical Christian thing, which is that he's trying to force his beliefs on other people, even though his beliefs are atheism, and he pays the price with the death of his only son. Um, I just find it shocking that these two stories weren't written like almost at the same time. What do you think? Uh, yeah, because uh, I, I believe this is the last added story. I think it's like one of the last ones she's finished. And this is this was my new favorite story after reading it a it's second really time. Good. I had, and he, it's actually my favorite story. If I had read this one first, it would be my favorite story. It's just that A View of the Woods is the most shocking one to me. Yeah, and that's the one that's, that sticks with people, I, I feel. That's the one that people would remember the most that they read this collection. And the the meek shall inherit the earth i had completely forgotten about this one i it completely like when i started reading it there was nothing no it's not called the meek shall it's not called the meek shall inherit the earth it's called the lame oh shall the lame shall inherit first the this guy he even though he know, he says satan has him his belief is that due to his clubbed foot which he refuses to get improved in any way it will get him into heaven first yeah and uh, so the the things about this story that really stand out to me is that the atheist is altruistic to like a fault where he he uh, chastises his son uh, who is obviously dealing with this distress of his mother just dying a year prior by kind of like focusing on anything else he, he can. Uh, in the beginning, it's shown that he sells seeds and he's been saving his money in jars. And I would think that like any father would kind of be proud that the son is, uh, you know, taking that like the first step, taking the initiative to do something to uh, like, you know, earn some money for himself. But the father immediately like, wouldn't you like to donate some of that money to somebody less fortunate to you? Like the father is constantly hounding this poor kid. And yet at the same time, the father is shown right from the start that he is completely lost as a parent. Do you remember, like, when you first meet the the boy, like, what the son's eating for breakfast? No. 
this like the father's sitting there and he's he's eating cereal out of like a carton i guess like one of those little like single cardboard carton things you would get at like a diner do you know what i'm talking about there where he like literally no no i i, I don't eat at diners i'm i'm far too good for that oh okay well forgiveness please maybe like <laughs> maybe like a hotel like a breakfast like a, they put out like a free breakfast they have like a little individual pack of anyway whatever so the father like a bento box <laughs> no it's like it's like a, take a cereal box and shrink it down to like maybe double the size of a pack of cigarettes and like that's that it's like a little individual oh yeah, of course. Okay, yeah. Of course. So the father is eating like his cereal, like milk and all, out of this, and he's like kind of like patting himself on the back. And his son comes down, and his son grabs a piece, like a large piece of cake from the fridge, and then sits it in front of him, and then starts covering it with ketchup. And the father yeah. is just like in his instead of being like, "Hey, wait a second, maybe I should cook breakfast for my son. Maybe I should." pull that away from him and get him something, you know, nutritional to eat. But instead he just sits there and looks at the kid and he's like, Oh my God, look at that greedy little bastard. Just eating all that cake. Like, do you, do, I'm surprised that didn't stick out with you because the, inevitably the boy covers the cake with ketchup, eats it way too fast and then throws it all up. And the father's like, why are you so greedy? Like, does that make sense to you as a father that you would allow your kid to to do that to himself and not think like, wait a second, maybe I should be taking more of a hand in responsibility for this child? It's really simple, right? They've both gone through a trauma, which is the death of the wife slash mother and the father's being selfish. What he's doing basically is he's trying to comfort himself instead of his son. And the great epiphany and he comforts himself, by the way, by being like altruistic and prideful, and he 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 like he thinks he's an intellectual um, do-gooder. Basically, he's like he's like I'm an atheist. I don't believe in any nonsense. I'm above all these petty bourgeois things, and I also go out of my way to help people. When in fact, that entire time, all he's trying to do is comfort himself. And at the very end of the book, once everything has gone sideways with this bad kid with a club foot, uh, he's trying to help. He realizes he has an epiphany, which is like oh my God, I've been a terrible father to my son. I'm giving him no comfort whatsoever. And then he swears, I will become mother and father to the boy. And he rushes to find him and apologize to the kid for everything he's done. But by that point, it's too late. His son has hung himself uh, in an effort to go see his mother in heaven. Um, yeah, it's like he's just being selfish. Like, so no, I couldn't, um, look, this is me being, I don't know, a uh, like, oh, I wouldn't be like that. But that is what I'm saying. Like, I'm hoping I wouldn't be like that mm -hmm. with my son. I'm also hoping my wife doesn't die. But I hope I'd be smart <laughs> enough to uh, – I hope I'd be smart enough to, to bring some comfort to my own kid. Sean, let's step back for a second from the individual stories, okay? And let's talk about some of the recurring themes throughout this book. So, because I had one really interesting reaction to all of this, okay? The, char the, the author, Frances O'Connor, is a woman growing up in the South as a Catholic. She has all sorts of hang-ups due to her environment, due to her Catholicism, due to her upbringing in a racist, white, rural South in which status means everything. I don't relate to any of this. I grew up in Maryland, which, you know, right outside of Washington, D.C. I am Jewish. While I didn't grow up around many Jews— I pretty much grew up in an environment where people said what they were feeling. 
uh, status and class wasn't a big thing. I grew up around many uh, black people, quite frankly. Um, and while there were obvious class distinctions just based purely on economics, I didn't grow up with kind of the inheritance that the old South has. Now, that's not to be like, I don't want to get canceled. Like, well, there's racism everywhere. Yes, I understand that. But it wasn't the inherited racism that, you know, a white woman in 1930s uh, Mississippi would have as a result of, like, generations of upbringing uh, going all the way back to the Confederacy. Um, so for me, reading all this, I had some observations. And one of my observations, specifically as a Jew, is like, yo, you can judge people, no problem. I judge people all the time. I never once feel uh, self-conscious about it or feel like a hypocrite because every every time somebody calls me out or exposes my hypocrisy, right, or something like that, I just have a good laugh. I'm like, ah, you got me. Like, you got me. But it's not going to stop me from judging people in the future. And I feel like this is a very specific Jewish thing where we like to argue. We like to expose people's weaknesses. We like to expose the flaws in people's arguments. Uh, we can be very judgmental. And because I'm not Christian, I don't have this complicated set of uh of morality rules basically that will either prevent me from getting to heaven or send me to hell jews we don't have to deal with any of that stuff in fact we don't really mention heaven heaven's not really a part of our theology now i am an atheist but i also consider judaism essentially my ethnicity so i can't act like just because i don't believe in god that i'm not jewish versus christianity in which you very much have to accept christ as the son of god and your lord and savior in order to be a christian but it was just really interesting you know i, I was reading it and i was thinking to myself this poor woman Flances, uh, Flanner O'Connery, she's got all these hang-ups. She's got all these things that are complicating her her uh, emotional state. And in my mind, she doesn't need to have any of them. Uh, and it was just really interesting for me to see what a complicated internal struggle people can have when they grow up in an environment like that and adhere to religious doctrine like that. Sean, you're a good Catholic boy, but you grew up in Pennsylvania. How did you feel reading this book? Did you relate to it at all? I, as, of course, it's like impossible because the time that O'Connor was writing this was like such a, like a unique changing of the tides. Like everything was in upheaval. Like everything was changing in the South around her. And I could see in some of her characters, I saw like a part of like myself, uh, you know, mm -hmm. in, especially in the Enduring Chill in the opening uh in the opening chapter where there's a young man has to take his mother to her her basically her gym class and the mother is very proud because she's raised the son like as a single mother and sacrificed all for this but the son still views himself as a failure and thereby kind of holds it against his mother like he won't like take on his own blame so i think there's some really insightful psychological things that O'Connor makes into it. But as far as like the sense of like the judging, the way that I looked at it is just these people honestly and deep down believe like to the core of their beings, what they're doing. And it's only until these specifically catered events that they're written into, are they able to be, uh, they're either punished outright by penalty of death or they lose something very dear to them, or they have like an, a, 
earth-shaking revelation. As with you, with with I, I knowing you as a friend, where it's like your judgment, your judgment's more like not like you believe in it and you can laugh it off because your judgment's more like a stand-up comedian, where like the the thought comes to you and you might think about that, but it's like you don't like encase it in concrete and make that a part of who you are. Whereas when I yes, was that's re- absolutely true. When I was reading it, I was like, these people, this is how they view themselves. And without it, it's a pillar of themselves getting knocked out from under them. And so for me, that that's why I think that these stories can be viewed as a little more tragic comic than on initial reading because you're watching these people that are built up and having just the base of themselves knocked out. But it's never like they didn't completely deserve it because it was it was always hubris. To go back to the lame shall inherit the earth, the the man, after he takes the older degenerate boy in, he sees the signs over and over again that this kid doesn't want his help, is actively refusing his help, and more than that, is insidiously turning his own son against him. At one point, I believe he they go and they uh, they uh, uh, shoplift a Bible, and when the father comes home, the two boys are sitting on the couch reading a bi- reading the Bible together, and the father's like, like, like he's like, what are you doing? Like, I didn't teach you to to raise that. And kind of in the way, the degenerate, the clubfoot is like, well, I'm giving your son the only comfort that you couldn't provide. And even though you don't believe in it, you still didn't try to do anything for him. So I just I just like that dark kind of humor to it where like everybody gets their comeuppance almost to such a finely tuned position. It isn't just that like, oh, this is clearly a bad guy like like right now in Hollywood, you have the 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 rise and fall of the uh, the unlikable protagonist. You know, like the Breaking Bads and Mad Men's and everything like that. Tony Soprano, where it's like we love the complexity of these characters and it's so, so dark and gritty and real and everything like that. Sometimes I just want to read a short story where a a racist woman gets knocked on her ass for doing something racist. That's just that's funny to me. (laughs) Like, I don't know. It's just straight, straight A to B to C storytelling. That really is my response to it. I might have judged so I, around it. I agree it. with you there. No, no, no. I agree with you there in the sense that she's absolutely um, criticizing and knocking on the butts of people that it seems like she grew up with. It's just that for me, I don't know these people. I didn't grow up in the South. I don't, I've don't. i never experienced that kind of passive-aggressive um, uh, politeness from people because, and you know as well, having grown up side of Philly, you know, where we're from, uh, people tend to tell you what they're thinking. If they don't like you, they're going to let you know, and it's actually a lot easier that way, right? Yeah, and it, it, that um, gets brought up in the very last story uh, where the old man is forced to move from the country to New York, and he's like used to dealing with black folk on his own like southern gentlemanly terms. and His own terms. Yeah, and when he addresses another, like a, another black man in the city, his daughter's like, Uh, don't like it's not the same people in the city do not care they don't want to be talked to and it's i I think this is the only character where it's like did you feel any sympathy for him where it's like he couldn't understand why his values didn't translate to the north 
Yeah, I did have some sympathy for him. And in fact, it was funny because uh, I don't think I'm giving any spoilers away because everybody freaking dies in this in this book. Yeah. But when that guy is basically about to die, he's just begging his daughter not to have him buried in New York. He wants to be buried back down south because to him, New York is hell. Mm-hmm. It is just... It is just the complete upside down world to him, right? Like nothing he knows about in life exists or is true in New York. Now, the thing I want to get back to in terms of uh, looking at the book as a whole and looking at uh, Connor O'Connor to begin with as an author and a person is that, and this is going to sound like a real punk comment from me, but it's kind of like when I have, when I see people who are like very religious and are like really like struggling with how they live versus what their religion requires. And there's so much mental hand wringing, right? And there's so much like, is this right? Is this wrong? Am I doing this incorrectly? Am I, should I be doing this at all? And I'm just thinking to myself, you're wasting so much mental energy on just some shit that ain't true. Like, just like, like you're, it's just, it's just really funny to me to see people debating something and really uh, wasting a lot of mental energy on something that they could just honestly throw overboard altogether. And while I do agree with you that she is giving the people that she grew up with their comeuppance, I also sense lots of internal conflict in her um, regarding her religion and her own and her own morality and all her beliefs. And I kind of feel bad for people that overthink shit like that. Oh like, no, you know, I'm a classic overthinker, but not in that way. I I try to. I try to overthink the things that are much more um, practical to me. You know, just like, should I buy this car? Or should I not buy this car? And she's just wringing her hands over all these larger issues. And it's just like, yo, like, all that shit's made up. Like, it's such a punk comment for me, like, to think, to, like, be judging the life's work of some celebrated and renowned uh, author. But I just can't help but feel that way. It's like... When you're debating the merits of something that's entirely untrue, I just kind of feel bad for those people. Yeah, and that's the thing. I, I like what you say there where it's that she's it's like she's doing mental gymnastics in her head over these big issues that nobody has the right answer for. Like even in the character that probably she would if I would think that if she had to recommend a character from this set of stories of like who is the closest one to getting it right. I think she would point to the father of the lame shall inherit the earth. He's the one that's least trying to, you know, get living kind of right, if there's a right way to do it, which there isn't. But there's another collection of her stories where it's called A Good Man is Hard to Find. And I was on the fence about which of these collections to recommend. And I just came down on the fact that I think she has much more to say in this set of stories and she says it better because in A Good Man is Hard to Find, there's a lot more straight up like existentialism. There's just life is meaningless. There's like only pleasure in misery. And it's much more of a like a refined kind of downer. Whereas this one, she's trying to at least latch on to Maybe this kind of dread that she felt within herself, where if you're constantly at odds with what you believe in and you're looking for yourself in faith or spirituality or maybe even like the right way to live your life, and you can never, because she's obviously an intelligent person, if she can never come up with an intelligent or reasonable enough answer, that's going to leave 
that open cavity for that kind of emptiness and meanness and angst to fill in. So while I think that she does a great job articulating herself, I don't think she ever in the store in these stories once prescribes what the her ultimate philosophy was. Did, I mean, did anything like come across to you as to like like if I asked you the same question, do you think there's any character in these in these stories that Flannery O'Connor would be like, yeah, that's the person I actually tried to be or would think is doing yes. it right? Yeah, so I, I first of all I entirely disagree with your with your notion that she is praising the father and the lame shall come the lame shall enter first. It's the opposite. Well, I don't, yeah, I don't think this she's is her crazy. condemning. This is her condemning atheists. See, this is the religious side of her. This is her taking an atheist and being like, he's he's just like any other uh, religious spousing. Um, what do you call people that try and convert others? like a proselytizer, right? He's a missionary. Yeah, He's a missionary. a missionary for atheism. Um, and she's really like saying, you know, these atheists don't get it. Now, me personally speaking as an atheist, I never talk religion with other people, nor do I try and convince other people that their religion is wrong, although I do think it is. Not in moral terms. I don't think morally their religion is wrong. I just literally don't believe in heaven or magic or the soul or anything outside the realm of science. Um, but to me, she is labeling atheists as that guy, that they're no different from the sort of worst versions of Christians or any type of a missionary. But the woman before that story in the comforts of home is a true and good Christian who tries to do right for the sake of doing right and ends up sacrificing herself. To me, that is at the core of, um, of, of, uh, what's her name? Uh, Flannery O'Connor. Flannery O'Connor. That, to me, that is at the core of who Flannery O'Connor thinks people should be, like that woman. That is the good Christian, and that this atheist guy, he can never be like that because he doesn't have any kind of moral compass or guidance. Um, and this is where I kind of think she's full of shit, quite honestly. Um, and this is where, you know, she kind of loses me. Um she gets me. I, I'm with her on all the sociological stuff about the South and her home. Like I get what she's doing, but then when she goes back to when she when she wrestles with the notions of spirituality and Christianity specifically, and what makes a good Christian versus a bad Christian, I kind of throw my hands up and I say, "Look, lady, like you don't have to think about this at all. Like none of that yeah. shit is true." Yeah, I think you're coming and back you can around. On yeah, it. and you can still be a good person without believing in any of that shit. Uh, so if you ask me, who is she? Who is the actual good person, uh, quote unquote, hero or protagonist of the book? It's the mother from the comforts of home, and it's not the father from the lame shall enter first. I think she is judging him quite harshly. True, that guy true. is just like every other uh, character in the book, from uh, Greenleaf to um, you know, uh, uh, what's it called? Um, Revelation. He's just like those women. Well, here, if I can backpedal a bit on my answer, please. I would think, because uh, I have my notes here on my Kindle, and in Greenleaf, uh, the woman actually says, this is, quote, she was a good Christian woman with a large respect for religion, though she did not, of course, believe any of it was true. That's a direct yeah. quote from the story. So that might actually be Flannery O'Connor in it. And once again, uh, the the downfall of this is that she has, like, two sons, that refused to help move a bull that's invaded into her yard. And uh, like she ends up trying to take care of it herself 
and gets killed by a bull, which I don't know what that has, <laughs> what <laughs> larger symbol that has other than like uh, just a criticism of like soft Southerners. But uh, I mean, I was happy it happened. Don't get me wrong, but I still disagree with you. I believe Flannery O'Connor is trying to say Flannery O'Connor believes in God. She believes in the resurrected Jesus Christ. And she is saying that the, the very fact of that woman, she's saying that woman can't be a Christian because she doesn't believe in it. And if she doesn't believe in it, she can't be a Christian. She also can't be a good person. The only good person in this book is like the truest Christian person. That's not Nobody even that's not even a, thinking about it. Right. It doesn't consider herself because I don't have anything from right. The- she doesn't consider it. She's a she's a Christian, but she's not she's not thinking about it when she does things. She simply believes and then tries to adhere to the morality and tenets of Christianity. And there and then she pays the ultimate price. Right? She is murdered by her son for it. Um, so in in my mind, you know, uh, Flannery O'Connor is a highly spiritual Christian who does believe. That Christianity is the way to the, uh, you know, the salvation of the soul and the leading of a good life. And I just kind of throw my hands up at that. I, I just think that's not really the case. And lots of people in this world are good people and are not Christians. You know, there's there's millions and millions and billions of people on this earth who aren't Christians. And that's why I just, I find her worldview, quite frankly, small. Oh, yeah. Small. yeah. And even though I think she gets human psychology so astutely and she's such a wonderful writer and i highly recommend her books she comes from a small place small towns small states with small worldviews and she's trying to almost break out of that box and see uh human beings for what they are but she can never do it outside the limitations of what she knows and what she knows is both small and large. Does that make sense? The, the human being, the, the individual is large, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you look at one person and you break them down from beginning to end at the, the beginning of their life till the end, you can learn a lot about the people, about human beings the world over. But at the same time, in terms of her ideas of morality and society and, and structures of, of law and, and uh, faith, that's all quite small. Yeah, and I think another thing that I really love about this collection is that it is so such a focused snapshot of this woman's like life and mentality. Like this is this collection of stories is frozen in time, and I think that actually works in the benefit for the stories. And I think there's like always that uh, kind of notion that like uh, if an author is from a certain geographical region. No matter how hard they try to hide it, they're always going to revert back to that wherever they came from. Have you ever heard of that kind of theory? Mm-hmm. Where it's like, I have. Yeah, it's like you can't go home again, but you, you inevitably end up there. Where I don't think she ever wanted out. She, I think she was just trying to write to appeal, like to placate the voices in her head, or try to work it out. Like it was like uh, trying to you know, work through an inner demon by going to the gym every day and running three miles. Like the writing was her escape. And she, I mean, she had lupus for most of her life, which obviously I think that bars you from having kids if it's a bad enough case. So she knew she was going to die alone. And then she had arthritis for like the past like 15 years before she died. So even sitting at the key, like the typewriter and typing these keys out or these stories out, was a constant pain for her. Uh, so to be able to even work through all that 
and come through with these collection of stories where there's clearly like not to be like uh you know uh weird about it, but there's clearly like a sense of pain i think that go through the stories uh, of course and they come out in like a you know beautiful unexpected ways but in the end yeah i think she was ultimately frustrated with her own smallness of mind and that's why all of these stories are so conclusive so final in her end because she couldn't for the life of her figure out her own answer so i think if you were able to to write your own story and instead of having to give it a meaning or a, like a a pleasant end that makes sense and satisfies everybody you know just just have the bull impale the old woman against the car just have the like the old man and the little girl physically beat each other to death you know have that kind of twist snap ending that just puts a, a final punctuation and i think that that's the one thing that she wanted i think she wanted a clear definite answer for what she was going through mentally and i think that in the writing that was the only way she was going to get anything near that which can is, i um yeah can i sort of go real big picture here and it's to add to what you're saying yeah absolutely i believe that she believes that there is some sort of arc to the universe that there's some sort of meaning to it all mm-hmm. and she's trying to figure that out and in my opinion if she just said to herself you know what there's no meaning to any of it there's no arc to any of it we make the meaning ourselves and then if she had like moved to india and just like I don't know, made salt. I think she would have been a lot yeah. happier. Like I, you know I, what I mean? Yeah. If, if if she had just completely given up every, she's the type of person like like look. I'm not. I don't want to judge her because I've lived in almost the same place my whole life. I haven't gone many places. I'm not some great world traveler. I I know more about the world from reading than I do from experiencing it. But to me, she seems like the type of person who could benefit more than others from just letting go of everything that she thinks and believes and going somewhere far away. Yeah, go to like a, a Buddhist temple in Tibet yeah. and just rediscover herself and find that sense of peace. But I think some people are born... I mean, I don't know. This is this is a question for you. It's like, I mean, obviously I think you've got yourself figured out, but me, I don't always think I have myself figured out. And I think there's there's certain people that are born that are just constantly seeking. They're never going to find what they look or what they're looking for, and that's part of the meaning that they you have to make for yourself. Is that you're searching, you know, there's not going to be an answer that ever satisfy you, but yet yet you're you're dogged on. Like that's why you that's why your reason for being is is that you're searching for something. It's like I think you have to stop searching. I think you have to stop searching and just enjoy the moment. I really do. Like I think. I think the search is just the overthinking. And in fact, I, I just think it does no good. Like in some ways it is better to just experience without analysis than to constantly analyze everything. This is a woman who lives a solitary life, right? She's sick. She's in a house and she's writing all these intense ruminations on Catholicism, spirituality, human psychology, uh, sociological issues in the South. And I like, I'm glad we get to experience it. I'm glad we get to read it and enjoy it. But I feel bad for her. I almost kind of feel like she would have been better off not doing any of that shit. And yeah. honest to God, just like leaving and traveling the world or some shit. Like if there's somebody who needs to travel the world, it's probably her. Not me in the sense that like, oh, I think I'm better than her. And I don't need to travel the world. I just think 
she would probably like enjoy it more honestly like because i'm happy with what where i am like i don't feel like the place i grew up in is full of all these these morally superior hypocrites who i've got to like you know expose and at the same time i've also got to like wonder about the meaning of it all like i'm just kind of going to work raising my family seeing my parents like doing what i can yeah but she's in this con she you know what she is sean she's emo <laughs> Oh, here we go. The emo conversation. She's super fucking emo. I got a friend like her and I'm always saying to him like, dude, like stop thinking about yourself all the time. Like stop analyzing your emotional state all the time. Like it's a form of narcissism oh, yeah. to constantly be thinking about how you feel and if you're doing things correctly or not correctly. Even if you're constantly criticizing yourself, that is a form of narcissism. Like just stop thinking about yourself and go out in the world and fucking experience some shit. And even if the world means like going to work every day, like don't think about it so much. Just do it. Yeah. Now uh, I guess I'm more I'm more of the Teddy Roosevelt type. You know, like right. man of action. Like more. get out there in the wild. Don't be a don't be an intellectual ninny. Yeah, is it was a Rolling Stone gathers no moss, and in this case, moss is just unbelievable existential angst. <laughs> yeah, I actually can't stand Teddy Roosevelt. I guess people like Teddy Roosevelt could learn a lot from her. Um, like, you know, guys who just, people who just rage forward without ever thinking about what they do. But people like her could definitely use some of that reckless abandon that people like that have. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, I mean, nobody's created equal and some people get more of a share than other thing. You get, uh, just really quickly, because we're coming up on that time, uh, I read this great old book by this guy named Erasmus and he was Italian and the book was called In Praise of Folly and the entire book is just is just that it's like you're much better off being stupid and gung-ho than being cautious and uh, like uh, circumspect about what you're going to do and it's like yeah it's it's kind of like uh, to dumb it down a whole lot it's that Jim Carrey movie where it's like Mr. Yes or Say Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. Where it's just... We're going from this to that. <laughs> well, I think that's exact. That's the exact opposite of this collection of books. It's like this is deep, like introspective, you know, moralistic, like stuff to chew on for your soul. Where it's like really the, the entire opposite is uh, just stop thinking, turn your brain off and say yes. And you'll you'll also get pleasure out of life. It's the yin and the yang. It's the dichotomy of the universe. Now, to I think to wrap this up, because we are running long, uh, Definitely. Would, would you want to have a drink with Miss Flannery O'Connor? Absolutely. I think it would be amazing. Yeah, I completely agree. Just like a bottle of bourbon and just listen to her talk and even to get insights, like if like, you know, towards the end of the night when she's a little more forthcoming, just to hear her thoughts would be just fascinating. I feel like her and I, we'd go back and forth and we would we would debate and talk about all the things that she's interested in. And then at the very end of the night, I would say to her, this was so enjoyable, but you realize that all of this was bullshit. It was just bullshit. Like we stayed yeah. inside. We didn't go outside. Yeah. But I, I mean, I still think it'd be a, an enjoyable way to pass the evening. Would, no, exactly. But my point to her would be like all this analysis and talking, and yet it didn't get us physically anywhere. Right. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like, um, she seems like a woman to me, even though she was a, a, almost a recluse, but it's all indoor conversations. You know, does yeah. she ever go hang gliding? 
No, or like, you know, like jump on the Tarzan swing into the old watering hole. It doesn't seem yeah. like her kind of bag. I mean, I mean, but she, she was needs also, it. Yeah. She needs it. Yeah, of course. But remember, she was dealing with lupus like her entire life. All the more reason. <laughs> All the more reason. All right. Any any final thoughts on this book before we wrap up? Uh, I apologize for uh, throwing you into it without giving you kind of a warning. But I think that's the best way to experience it. It's it to me. It's just such a, a shocking, uh, shockingly different. And like I said, it's a it's a Polaroid of a specific place and time, and it's so thematically well done. It may not scratch the itch for everybody, and just like I think it's great. I think you have a positive opinion, but if it's not your bag of tea or bag of bag of tea, whatever that means, uh, don't try <laughs> don't try and force they put- it. They put they put they put tea in bags. Okay. Yeah. Okay. If it's not your uh, not your brand of tea, don't try and force it. Enjoy it if you enjoy it, and it just don't don't question if you don't like it because it's not for everybody. Here's what I'll say. For starters, I think we've done a really good job picking books where the writing is really good, the actual writing, and mm-hmm. this is no different. This she is a fucking grade A writer, man. This this lady. She slaps, you know what I'm saying? She knows how to write. This, is, this isn't this is some Stephen King bullshit. Like, this lady is a true writer. She is excellent. I kind of knew when I was reading this book that I was going to enjoy talking about it more than I enjoyed reading it. And what's really interesting is that this is one of the books I didn't enjoy reading as much, and yet I enjoyed talking about more. So I actually think that this... Like, I enjoyed talking about this book more than some of our earlier conversations of books I liked more and enjoyed reading more. So I think my recommendation, anybody listening to this, this is a good book to read in a book club or with a friend where you know you're going to have somebody to talk about it with afterwards. That is my recommendation. I do recommend this book, highly so, but I think think it'll be much more worthwhile if you read this book with someone else who's reading it, knowing you'll get to talk about it. Because this book, I think, just like everything else that this woman does, I think it's meant to be talked about. It's not merely meant to be digested. Because it is a debate. These books, these stories to me are all debates. She is debating all these conflicting ideas in her head. And I think it's good to talk with a friend and debate the things that she's debating. So that, that's my final thoughts on this book. Yeah, excellent point. And I think that's also another strength of the short story form is that they're, they always kind of feel unfinished, so you're allowed, when you talk about them, to flesh out your own ideas where the story might have gone. So, yeah, and it's not, like, as complete as a novel, where I think a novel you can kind of finish by yourself and be like, yes, that was great. I had everything I wanted. But where a short story, since it's lacking a little bit on the, the beef, uh, yeah, to have somebody else to talk about it with has been great. And speaking of which, I really enjoyed talking with this this book with you, Sam. Yeah, this was, I think, one of our best conversations, Sean. Um, I'm, I am very, even though I opened up with what the fuck, now I'm just kind of like, eh, what the fuck? Yeah, you know, so, it's a less tone, so it's first a less it was, down. Yeah, first it was what the fuck, and now it's kind of like, hey, what the fuck? Yeah. You know, what the fuck? What the fuck? So my what the fuck has, has, has drastically changed now after talking about it. Sean, this was an awesome one. Good to talk to you again, and I look forward to the next one. All right, I'll talk to you next time, Sam. Uh,